Let's pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for loving us so much. We thank you for your word. We thank you through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are brought to faith in Christ Jesus. And as we come to your word, guide us, lift us, keep our feet on the path of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. When people think of church, there's often an ideal in mind. For example, you might say that church is a place of harmony, a peace, of unity. Everyone's nice to each other, and the perfect church always sings and plays the songs that I know. Right? The perfect church. But on this side of heaven, is there such a thing as a perfect church? The answer is no. Church is often messy. It's often imperfect. And there are times, quite frankly, that people leave a church because it's not perfect. Or sometimes people use the excuse of not joining a church because it's not a perfect church. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to me. You see, a church body is always imperfect because it's made up of both saved and unsaved people. It's made up of those who are alive in Christ and those who are going along for the ride. It's made up of people who try to follow God's Word and those who would rather follow their own opinion or the opinion of the world. It's made up of those who seek holiness. And it is made up of those who revel in the flesh of the world. Churches like that exist aboundingly in today's society. They also existed aboundingly in the very beginning of the Christian church. I mean, so what's the answer, right? What's the answer to a messy church? Do we just take all the riffraff? Do we take all of the sinners and expel them out of the church? Well, if we did that, we'd be expelled too, and there would be no church. So that's not the answer. So what is the answer? The answer is the gospel. It is the gospel of what Jesus Christ has done for us, and you and I need to be trued up to that again and again and again. You see, the gospel is not just for the unsaved to hear. The saved need to hear it as well. So we're going to start today, this series, The Gospel in a Messy Church, in the Messy Church. And it's a series in 1 Corinthians. And by the way, they were a messy church. There are issues such as division, conflict that led to a lawsuit. There's pride, there's spiritual pride, uh, spiritual gifts, 
abusing the Lord's Supper, resurrection, marriage, divorce, immorality, and sexual immorality. How's that for a messy church? And yet, within all of this, there are themes of the gospel, of Christ crucified, God's wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, love, unity, and hope. It's a good series for us to be in, to learn and grow. So before we actually get to the text this morning, I'm going to guess a lot of you don't know too much about Corinth. So it's a letter to the Corinthians, so it's the church in Corinth. So let me give you just a thumbnail background. Corinth is actually part of Greece. It is the southern province, and you can see where Corinth is, you can see uh, Athens, and in the area, Peloponnese, so there's also this place called Sparta. I bet you've heard of Sparta before. And Athens and Sparta had a great war. It was called the Peloponnesian War. So if you ever wondered what that actually meant, it was the war between Sparta and Athens. But now I'm going to take the map and I'm going to zoom in because it's important for you to see. Corinth was actually situated where there were two harbors. There was only about four or five miles of land that separated those two harbors. And so it was often easier for ships to come in. And so it became a really good port city, a point of a lot of commerce and trade. As a matter of fact, the history of Corinth goes back thousands of years, and it has its ups and downs. In 146 B.C., it was actually destroyed by the Romans. But then Julius Caesar rebuilt it about 100 years later in 44 B.C. And it became so important that he made it the capital of the southern portion of Greece, the provincial capital. So anytime you get a port city, a city of great commerce, you get a lot of diversity especially religious diversity. So there were uh, temples all around. There were temples for worshiping the Greek gods. There were temples for uh, even Egyptian gods. There was the temple of Aphrodite. And I believe this is what we're seeing here, the remnants of the temple of Aphrodite. Now, if you know anything about Aphrodite, she was the Greek goddess of love, but not just love. It was lust. It was passion. It was pleasure. So around that particular temple, it said that there were up to 1,000 temple prostitutes. So well known was the city of Corinth for prostitution, for sexual immorality or immorality in general, that the Greeks even created a word for it, to Corinthianize, which means to live a Corinthian life of immorality. Okay? That's the church. That's the place that Paul went in about 50 AD. And he spent 18 months there, and the church of Corinth was founded. Now, the letter that we are going to get into, 1 Corinthians, actually was written about three, four years after he had left the the church of Corinth. 
So you've got the context for the series. You've got the context a little bit for the town. And now to make it really simple, the context for what we are going to be covering today, it is this. There is unity in Christ through the power of the gospel, which is the wisdom of God. Do you want everything in one sentence? There it is. There is unity in Christ through the power of the gospel, which is the wisdom of God. So now let's go to our text. Verse 10, I'm going to read through 13. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So what he's addressing here is something that's actually very common throughout the church, throughout the Christian church, from the beginning and to this day. Listen, there are a lot of people who say, I'm a Catholic, so I follow the Pope, right? Or we're Lutherans, so we follow Martin Luther. Or we're Calvinists, so we follow John Calvin. I mean, it goes on and on. And in today's world, it becomes fractured even more because of the popularity of so many pastors. I follow Joel Osteen. I follow Rick Warren. I follow John MacArthur. I follow Alistair Begg. And there's more and more and more that you've never even heard of who are very popular. And so people divide in camps. And you get the MacArthurites arguing with the I don't know how to even say it. Osteenians? Okay. But you get all of these camps arguing back and forth. And rather than saying, I follow Christ, what's at the forefront is they follow that pastor, priest, rabbi, whoever it might be, right? In any religion. So by human nature, many often put the pastor, priest, or leader ahead of Jesus. And we say, I follow that pastor, and that's their identity, rather than following Christ. So that's what was happening in the church of Corinth. They were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. By the way, that's Peter's name in Aramaic, Cephas. Some say, I follow Christ. My my question is, shouldn't we all be following Christ? Right? That's that's the amen, right? We should all be following Christ if indeed He is the head of the church, of the body of Christ. And we would no more divide the head of Christ than we should divide the body of Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, And He, Jesus, is the head of the body the church. In Ephesians, Paul's talking about marriage, but he says this, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, 
just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. See, all things are held together in the body of Christ by the head of the church, and that is Jesus Christ. And because there is but one Christ, we are to be united as one body. So we are to be united in Christ Jesus. Does that mean we are to be uniform exactly with each other? No, it doesn't, does it? I mean, Paul uses this quite a bit, the the analogy of that in the body there are many members. So the mouth is not my foot, although my foot sometimes wants to go into my mouth, right? The hand is not the knee, the shoulder is not the hip. All of that, right? We get that there is a great diversity, but what keeps the body in unity? It is the head. It is the mind. When the mind is astray, the body does all sorts of things that you don't want it to do. So there's only true unity in the, in the body of Christ from the head, who is Jesus Christ and his mind. Paul wrote, but that you be united, united in the same mind with the same judgment. So we should all look to Jesus Christ and his mind. So here's a a really wonderful section from Philippians where Paul really addresses this. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is writing about Jesus, the head of the church. He is really talking about the mind of God. You want to know the mind of God? Look to Christ Jesus, for they are one and the same. The Father and the Son are one. The mind. Now, I want to put in one little caveat here, okay? When Paul is talking about unity, he's talking about unity in the truth of who Jesus is and the gospel and the scriptures. He is not talking about unity with false teaching or heresy. And he's going to deal with that later on. And he says, really, anyone who is promoting false teaching needs to be expelled from the body. So he's talking about unity in Jesus Christ and the truth of who he is, of God's very word. So we find unity in the head, the mind of Christ Jesus, through the power of the gospel. And the gospel is the very power of God. He says, I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. 
I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So, is Paul discounting baptism here? He's not, is he? He's saying people are using their baptism even for division. And they don't realize that the baptism actually comes from the gospel. Two, uh, now two months ago, we watched the movie here, Jesus Revolution. Good movie. Uh, and what we saw in that particular movie is that thousands upon thousands of people were baptized in Pirate's Cove Beach in Newport Beach, California. I mean, people just went and flocked to get baptized. And at the end of the movie, Greg Laurie was there, a young Greg Laurie, all by himself. And then you had, I don't know, it was either four, maybe six teenagers or young adults who had driven from Texas to be baptized there in Pirate's Cove. And that scene, although heartwarming in, in some degree, also made me twinge just a little bit. I mean, why did they have to drive all the way from Texas to Newport Beach, California, to get baptized there? Was their baptism more special because they were baptized in Pirate's Cove? Was their baptism more special because they were baptized by Greg Laurie. And that's some of those questions that start to run through my head. Would their baptism have been just as important, just as powerful, had they been baptized by Pastor Joe Johnson in some rural town unknown? Yeah. So people are even taking baptism and they're making this thing almost separate from the gospel. And what, what bothered me, and I know movies have to leave things out, but there was the emphasis on baptism without the gospel. And so that's what Paul is really addressing here. He says some people are even using baptism for that division and they don't even know what the baptism really is about. And it's not that baptism isn't important. It's extremely important. I mean, we hold it as a sacrament, not just a ritual. So he's addressing this because he understands how important the gospel is. It is the gospel alone that brings the dead to life. And so he goes on. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent, eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of, Christ, cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What's the gospel? in non-fancy, non-eloquent words. That you have sinned. You've rebelled against God. And your rebellion against a holy God is not a small little matter. 
and that you can't make up your rebellion against God. And God says, I need to punish that rebellion, that sin. And so the sentence you receive is death. And it's not only death, is it? It's hell. But God loves you so much that he provided a way for you, a way that you can't provide. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the son of God, to come and pay the price for your rebellion, for your sin. And so Jesus paid that full penalty, which was death on a cross for you. And not only did he die, he was buried. And you know what? On the third day, he rose again, showing that death cannot hold him. And when you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, when you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that he not only suffered and died, that he was raised from the dead, and in him you are forgiven, the good news is, and for that's, that's what gospel means, good news. Good, the good news is, you're forgiven. Completely. That you are actually a new person in Christ Jesus. And God doesn't look at your sin anymore. That's all been covered, paid for by Jesus. And so the question is, do you believe? Do you confess? Do you desire to be restored in Christ Jesus? That's the gospel. No fancy words. No soaring rhetoric. No great skills of oratory. Just sharing the gospel. You see, it's, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And so when Paul came, he didn't want to try to impress them with how powerful of speaker he was. As a matter of fact, this is what he writes. He says this, And when I came to you, brothers, uh, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power so that your faith might rest not on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul came proclaiming a gospel, not in powerful oratory. As a matter of fact, in his second letter to the Corinthians, he addresses the criticism because this is what was said of him. His letters, Paul's letters, are weighty and forceful, but his physical presence is unimpressive and his speaking is of no account. How's that for being a preacher? Your speaking is of no account. You see, in those days, and in our days as well, we often put the emphasis on how well, how persuasive that speaker is with how well they speak. The power, the force, the emotion. 
And you get a lot of pastors who are just practically yelling their entire sermon as if that is the gospel. As if that will persuade. But Paul says, I didn't come to do that with you. One commentator put it like this. He said, Paul distinguished himself from the Greek orators of the day who sought to persuade with impressive rhetoric and style. Paul insisted that his own preaching was simple and straightforward. He avoided great oratory because he did not want to distract from the message itself. His style of preaching was self-effacing, pointing to the source of salvation, Christ. Listen, to share the gospel, you don't have to be trained as an orator. You don't have to be trained in great rhetoric. Your testimony doesn't even have to be heart-wrenching or heartwarming. So many people put a focus on their own testimony nowadays. You do not have to be a drug addict who hit rock bottom and then God cleaned up your life to give a testimony. Nor do you have to say how God came and restored your family. As powerful as those testimonies are, they aren't the gospel. They are the effects of the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God and because you have been given a new life, a new creation in Christ Jesus, because of that, therefore, the outer form changes. We talked about that last week. Testimony about how your life has been affected is not actually the gospel. It's the effect of the gospel. And when people get caught up so much in the effects of the gospel, how their lives were improved, they unintentionally rob the cross of its power. And we see that in so many churches today. So many churches have personal testimonies about how God did things in their life, and it's void of the gospel. It's void of who Christ is and what he has done for you. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a testimony. That's fine. I was never a drug addict. So, do I still have a testimony? Yeah. Here's my testimony. I was stubborn as a mule. And God kept pulling me along until finally He revealed Himself to me. And finally, I understood who Christ Jesus was and is. And in Him, I'm forgiven. That's the power of the gospel. And for those who are perishing, that's what they need. They need to hear that. For those who know they are perishing, the gospel is the greatest gift you could ever give them. It is the gospel that brings people to life, a new life. It is the gospel who could only take a wretch like me like Clayton Wilfer, and have a new creation, a new life. That's the power of God. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now you have to know, people will scoff at this, right? Because it's not complex enough. I've explained the gospel to people and they go, that's it? Say, yeah, 
That's it. And they're like, wow, I never knew that. And they have a new life because of that. But people will scoff. They'll say, well, that's too simple. That does include all the science and philosophy and all the wisdom of the ages. <laughs> so this is what Paul writes. And I'm going to read verse 19 through 24. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through folly, the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the world has its own set of what they think wisdom is. Now I have to admit, and you know this, I tend to be a little bit brainy sometimes in my teaching and preaching. Yes? <laughs> You're like, yeah, okay. Especially if you were here last week. I apologize a little bit. It got a little too brainy. But I got trapped. I actually did. I got trapped in my own sermon. I couldn't figure a way out of it. I try. Uh, but, you know, as a pastor in this day and age, you're called to have to know or be at least conversant in so many things. History, science, politics, philosophy, logic, reasoning. I, I mean, all sorts, a myriad of things, right? And so I try to be at least conversant about that. But I know it has to have a practical application. And when things are not practical, I, it's like I start to lose interest. Let me tell you about the class I took at the Summer Institute of Theology. Remember I said one was good, one wasn't? Let me tell you about the one that wasn't. It was an introduction to philosophy. Now, I like philosophy. It has logic and reasoning, and I use logic and reasoning. Just take a look at the sermon today. Three parts, right? United in Christ through the power of the gospel, which is the wisdom of God. Those things follow together. So I like those things. But it can only go so far. So this class could have been really good. It could have been good. But it wasn't. It was taught by a very credentialed professor. But the goal of the class was truly an introduction to philosophy. Like a college course. With no practical application. So the first day... We talked about all of these genres, subgenres, actually all week. We simply talked about genres and subgenres and the characteristics of each for each division of philosophy. So the first day, we covered metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Now, I know I've already lost most of you there. Right? You're like, <laughs> okay. That was just, I don't know, the first half hour of day one. Uh, but then, oh, but then, 
We covered the philosophy of politics, aesthetics, logic, science, religion. We covered ontology, teleology, and many more ologies. And by the third day, I was ready to hit my head against the keyboard. I really was. I thought about it. But I thought that might be disrespectful. Why? Because this is all about the wisdom of man and not the wisdom of God. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is not only correct knowledge, but the application of such knowledge. Now, I found a rather silly way of explaining this. Knowledge is knowing that the tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is never putting it in a fruit salad. Knowledge and wisdom connected but not the same thing. So knowledge concerns itself with facts and information, but wisdom is the ability to discern or judge what is true, right, or lasting. It's the proper application of knowledge. Knowledge can exist without wisdom, but wisdom cannot exist without knowledge. One can be knowledgeable without being wise. Knowledge understands that when the light when the light turns red, oh, sorry, knowledge understand that the light turned red. Wisdom is applying the brakes. Knowledge sees quicksand. Wisdom walks around it. Knowledge memorizes the Ten Commandments. Wisdom works on obeying the Ten Commandments. Knowledge learns about Jesus. Wisdom says to follow Jesus. So, wisdom and knowledge. Earthly wisdom and knowledge versus godly wisdom and knowledge. So let's just do a comparison. Is your knowledge of the earth and the universe unlimited? No. It's pretty finite. As a matter of fact, if you drew a graph of how much you actually know about everything, it'd be like less than a dot, right? All of us would be less than a dot compared to everything. Is your knowledge eternal? Is it ever lasting? Does it go throughout all time? And the answer is no, it doesn't, does it? So you see where I'm leading here. God's knowledge is so far above and beyond what we have. And thus his wisdom is so far and above what we have that we lean fully on him. We have wisdom from him. And in Christ Jesus, many people see the cross as foolishness. But for God, it is the wisdom of God. So I know this is a bit of a cliffhanger here. But because we're going to be in 1 Corinthians for a little bit, we're going to come back next week and start with the wisdom of God and delve into that even more. Because I want to make sure we have a good foundation of Christ Jesus and the gospel, the wisdom of God, 
before we start dealing with the messiness of the church. So for you today and this week, how do you apply this? So I would like you to write down the gospel in simple words and practice saying it. I'm I'm really serious about this. If the gospel is indeed the greatest gift you could give someone, you've got to be able to say what it is in simple words. So write it down. Practice it. Because you never know when you might need to say it. Somebody says, I'm perishing. Uh, (laughs) You know, I've only got an hour to live. I'm perishing. What's the gospel? Uh, I wonder if my pastor's on speed dial here, you know. No, you've got to be able to share the gospel, right? Even if it's just a little bit. And the other is, I would like you to ponder, to meditate on this. There's unity in Christ through the power of the gospel. And if you want, add this, which is the wisdom of God. But really, ponder, meditate on this. There's unity in Christ through the power of the gospel, which is the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Holy God and gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom. And we marvel at it. Lead us on evermore in your knowledge, your wisdom, your truth, all found in Christ Jesus and the gospel. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.